Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just a quick heads up. This podcast contains rude language and adult themes. The philosophy of sex. Pain and pleasure from a neuroscientific standpoint are very close together in the brain. They've read a few books and looked at some porn and they think that unless they're doing full-on 24-7 chattel slavery that they're not real. And oh my God, people get themselves in so much trouble with that one. (laughs) So much healing is possible when we love each other, when we are in community, when we play, when we have sex. There's a huge potential for healing. And it's a different kind. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Would you consider yourself kinky or maybe more vanilla? Have you ever wanted to explore the world of BDSM but felt a bit lost and intimidated? In this episode, we're going to explore the softer side of kink by deconstructing some of the many misunderstandings surrounding it. Guiding us will be professional dominatrix and gestalt therapist Emma Steele, author Janet Hardy, and sex educator and disability advocate Kaz Kiljoy. We'll traverse the nuances of power dynamics, communication, and safety. We'll also uncover the enormously vast ways kink can be experienced, and our guests will share their experience of using kink to manage chronic pain and unpack social conditioning. We'll also discuss some of the conundrums that arise when the activities of underground communities become more mainstream and the importance of education in preventing injuries and reducing harm. Yeah, I I didn't know that there was anybody in the world besides me who got turned on thinking about spanking. I mean, how how could I? I was a, a young wife and mom living in a small city in California. I had no access to porn or workshops or any of those things. That's Janet Hardy. Janet is an author and sex educator who writes about alternative sexualities and relationships. Along with her longtime co-author and lover, Dossie Easton, she's written about everything from polyamory to spanking. It, it took me a surprisingly long time to catch on that my interest in spanking was in fact sexual, because I'd been thinking obsessively about spanking since my teens, probably earlier. And because women do not have that inborn barometer of when they're turned on, it's possible to stay in denial about that for a really long time which I did, you know, I finally caught on. So that was that. And then I also had to figure out that there were other people who had similar interests and that if I could find those other people, I would be able to do spanking in a way that worked for me morally, ethically. It would be consensual. It would be all agreed to. It would be fun. And so I had to do both of those bits of information gathering before I could come to terms with my own interests. 
And of course, by then I was pushing 30 and married and raising a couple kids. So it was difficult. It was very difficult. I had been married to my husband for, had to be a decade before I even told him, because it was really terrifying. Communication is the most important part of kink and BDSM. And we'll talk about that later. But on the other side of the world, in Berlin, Emma Steele was lucky to find a community of like-minded people quickly. From fooling around with lovers and partners, Emma became really interested in kink and BDSM. She read books, went to workshops, attended conferences, and was welcomed into the community. Living in Berlin at the time, there was a lot going on. Very, very lucky to be in Berlin. Even decades ago, there was a lot in place already compared to all other cities in Germany and I'm sure many other places in the world. I have been working as a professional dominatrix for 15 years and I've been part of different BDSM scenes for much longer than that. I also work as a gestalt therapist And I am in my third year of a trauma therapy course. Our third guest is Kaz Killjoy, a writer, disability activist, and many other things. I'll let them elaborate. My name is Kaz Killjoy, and I am a disabled sex educator. And I guess my biggest interest is uh, kink and chronic pain but I cover a lot of territory. I'm the co-founder of the Disability and Sexuality Access Network, which is a cooperative of people or collective, depending on how you look at it, have come together. We all focus on disability and sexuality in different ways. Some of us are artists, some of us are sex workers, some of us are educators. And we've come together to make it easier for people to find us, for one as well as to share resources and provide peer support, things of that nature. Like Janet and Emma, Kaz's kinky side made itself known to her early on. I can't recall a time in my life when I wasn't kinky. So I was 13 and I ended up in a bookstore and I always hung out in the sexuality section of the bookstore and I finally came across a book about kink. It was like this giant coming home. I was like, oh, there are other people who are like this, who are into these things. It's not just me and I'm not weird or maybe I am weird and this is weird, but I I don't think it's weird. It just feels healthy and normal to me. And just realizing like, this is a, a thing that exists and it's out there and it's it's not just me and I can participate in it with other people and I can be creative and get my needs met. We shouldn't go further without clearing some things up straight away. What do kink and BDSM mean? Do we even need to categorize them? I prefer kink to BDSM because kink covers more. BDSM is more bondage and control and power differentials. And someone is usually a top, someone's usually a bottom. And I find that those definitions don't 
work in my life. And I know many people that I've had encounters with that those definitions don't work with their lives either. So it works out dropping the BDSM part and just calling it kink. To me, it's not so important to differentiate between BDSM and kink. I'm not as interested in clear definitions and words. It's really important that people can choose what works for them. And kink is maybe a little more of a broad term. But then again, BDSM is an umbrella term too. So all of us are embedded in power dynamics wherever we are. There are people who are older or younger. There are people who have more or less experience in a certain field. There is uh, being white or being of color or black. There is the status of visa and nationality. The way we perform gender comes loaded with expectations and power dynamics. And sometimes people choose to play with these power dynamics to use all of these different social positionings for play and for fun or for serious reasons, it doesn't matter, to subvert them. BDSM to me means using what is already there and turning it into something that helps us explore our deepest sexual and soul level needs and often it's easier to get there when we assume a role that is over when play is over as humans we can be very oriented towards power whether it's social hierarchies or finding powerful people to be more attractive power can be really hot for us Despite the salacious stories that position kink as a pathway to harm, there isn't much evidence that unhealthy kink in which one or more participants suffer lasting harm from the experience is significantly different from other unhealthy relationships. Kink can be used as a scapegoat for abusive and non-consensual behaviours, but these are extremely unlikely to make up the majority of kinky sexual encounters. But unfortunately, they get more press. So before we go any further, let's clear up some common misconceptions. Misconception one, kink and BDSM is all sex and violence. BDSM does not have to include pain. It does not have to include bondage. It does not have to include control. People are allowed to order a la carte and pick the thing they like and not do the thing they don't like. It's holding each other. It's holding each other accountable. It's supporting each other also outside of play and outside of parties and fun. Not just be a network, but a true community. Misconception number two. All kinky people are traumatized. That we're all abuse survivors is probably the one I run into most often. In fact, there have been numerous studies, none of which have shown any likelihood of a BDSM practitioner being more or less likely than anyone else to be an abuse survivor. We are people who talk about it more because we're people who talk a lot by and large, but I am not an abuse survivor. My co-author, Dossie, is. And it doesn't seem to matter in terms of what roles we take or in terms of how heavy or lightly you want to play. It's just not 
a vector that determines where someone is in BDSM. Misconception number three, kink and BDSM is inherently anti-feminist and reflects cultural dynamics that are racist and sexist. Yes, it does reflect cultural dynamics that can be sexist or racist if you play that way. But what it does is bring those to the surface where we're conscious of them and we can explore them for fun and then leave them alone at the end of the scene. I mean, a lot of our fantasies are formed around unhealthy power dynamics, whether it's owner and slave, whether it's pirate and victim, uh, whether it's abusive older person and naive younger person. Yes, they are terrible dynamics and we don't want them in the world for real, but they turn us on. I think it is worthwhile to look at BDSM as play with archetypes. A lot of people resist that idea because they think uh, playing with archetypes has to be a theatrical role play, which, you know, I'm a big fan of theatrical role play. I love doing it. Doing it with someone who's good is just a delight. But a lot of people are really uncomfortable with it. I still think they're playing with archetypes. This playing with archetypes that Janet is referring to goes slightly deeper than just power dynamics. The history and thinking behind archetypes come from Carl Jung, the Swiss founder of psychoanalysis. Jung asserted that beyond our consciousness, which is the part of ourselves that we're aware of, and our personal unconscious, which are the parts of ourselves that we're unaware of, we have a collective unconscious. Jung rejected the concept of tabula rasa, or the notion that the human mind is a blank slate at birth to be written on by solely experience. He believed that the human mind retains fundamental unconscious biological aspects of our ancestors. The collective unconscious contains a set of shared memories, symbols and ideas which we can all identify with, regardless of the culture that we were born into or the time period in which we live. Jung believed that we inherit these archetypes much in the way that we inherit instinctive patterns of behaviour. These archetypes are the model image of a person or a role, for example, the mother figure, father, hero or innocent. There are many archetypes that may overlap at any given time. Jung proposed that crucial to individuation, or the process of becoming oneself, was to interrogate the influence these archetypes had on who we are and how we present ourselves to the world. So in overly simplistic terms, by bringing these archetypes that we're all subject to, to the surface where we're more aware of them, kink can become a method to consciously manipulate, explore and subvert our understanding of ourselves as individuals and the cultural symbols we've inherited and aligned our behaviour with. In Jungian terms, it offers a chance for us to step out of our shadow and expand our self-awareness. The bitch goddess archetype, the benevolent master archetype, the mischief maker archetype. There's a million of them and BDSM gives us a way to tap into them because they have a lot of heat behind them. You know, they become archetypes because they're things that we respond to vividly. And so when we go into doing BDSM, we are intentionally moving into that world of archetype and storytelling, whether it's overt or innate. 
The Philosophy of Sex is brought to you by Becoming. Becoming offers something quite different from your typical online sex store. We combat the frustration of trying to find a great sex toy by producing personalized recommendations. Kind of like a sex toy concierge or HelloFresh with dildos. We only stock the best of the best, so whether you're starting out or adding to your collection, take our quiz, tell us what gets you off, what you're curious about trying, and we'll deliver a personalized selection of toys to your door. Pleasure is for everyone, so visit becoming.me. Becoming spelt B-E-C-U-M-I-N-G. Back to the episode. There are aspects of kink and BDSM that can seem quite shocking from the outside and means the whole culture is often defined by these violent, power-driven, aggressive connotations. I want to take a moment to break down some of what it is you're really seeing. Good kinky sex, or BDSM, unfolds as a scene. A scene is thoroughly planned and discussed so that everyone agrees fully on the parameters of what's going to happen. This includes agreeing on what power dynamics or archetypes you'd like to take on, who's playing the dominant and who's playing the submissive role, also referred to sometimes as top and bottom. This level of understanding of one another is important to remember, Something else to remember is that kink and BDSM are forms of play. Sure, they're intense sometimes, but a well-planned scene can allow those involved to access parts of that intensity in a safe environment. This doesn't mean doing away with spontaneity, quite the opposite. It simply means you're walking into an encounter with consent and knowing what people's boundaries are. Plus, the act of planning and talking about what you want to do together can be extremely erotic. Kink is one way to reflect on the power dynamics we experience in our daily lives and subvert them, explore them, and simulate them. Janet told me a story about how she and Dossie play with this idea of simulated realities together in a powerful way. And I wish she were here to talk about this because it's really her story. There was a point in her life when she had escaped from an abusive relationship while pregnant and living on the streets of the hate in San Francisco. And she really was a victim. She was living off free yogurt from the gleaners. And, and she said it allowed her to experience that again with a container around it. So, and she said it felt luxurious to be able to fall back into that victim role with it having no actual consequences. So one word in the scene would have been over. But because we trust each other to go into dark places, uh, we were able to play it all the way through. We've had numerous scenes together that have gone into very dark places for both of us. And we read each other very well. I mean, you know, we've been lovers and play partners off and on for 30 years now. We read each other well and we trust each other deeply. And so we can go to these dark places. And I, in real life, am accommodating to a fault. I'm a pleaser. So for me, it's very exciting to go into these dark, non-pleasing places and have them expected. And similarly, Dossie is a very strong-minded and independent person. So for her, it's a great joy to be able to not be that, to be tiny and helpless and acted on and passive because she knows I'll take care of her. <laughs> 
Janet and Dossie trust each other deeply to access these kinds of places safely. Safety is the utmost focus in a scene, and that can't be stressed enough. I think the biggest single mistake I see novices undergo when they first come into the scene is wanting it all now. They've read a few books and looked at some porn, and they think that unless they're doing full-on 24-7 chattel slavery, that they're not real. Oh my God, people get themselves in so much trouble with that one. (laughs) You know, baby steps. It it is not too much to suggest that you try one new thing at a time. If you've never done any BDSM before, then it might be that tying their hands is where you get to go the first time. And that way you can move into learning what you like, learning what you don't like in a gradual way. And if something goes haywire, you'll have a pretty good idea of what set it off. And you can go back and and retool that and do it in a way that doesn't set things off. If you take Janet's advice and advance slowly, with self-awareness and respect, the nuances and the culture of kink and BDSM will reveal themselves to be so much more than what's perceived on the surface. So much healing is possible when we love each other, when we are in community, when we play, when we have sex. There's a huge potential for healing and it's a different kind. For example, many, many people feel that being tied up in bondage gives them a huge sense of safety and of being held. And the inability to move gives a lot of people a tremendous amount of inner freedom and calm and this kind of soothing, quiet and slow energy that is being created together is for many people a healing situation. Kaz sees even more possibilities for healing. Kaz has experienced chronic pelvic and genital pain for more than 20 years, and it's taken a long time for them to be able to address this. Kaz often speaks about and has taught courses on pain management and how kink can be used in various ways to manage chronic pain. Pain and pleasure, from a neuroscientific standpoint, are very close together in the brain. So if we we have a sensation and then we decide it's painful, well, it's because we decided it was painful. That reaction isn't necessarily something our conscious brain is doing. But what's fun about it is that you can retrain the brain to take these sensations that you feel And you can say, oh, well, maybe there's a little pleasure there. Let's think about how that could relate to pleasure, that sensation. Or what can we add to that sensation to make the initial sensation more pleasurable? A lot of people who experience pain, chronic pain, have found that by receiving consensual outside pain, acute pain, novel pain, that this helps to manage their chronic pain. Basically what's happening in the brain is we are overriding the chronic pain sensation with an acute pain, as long as it's not a serious injury type pain. You know, if you have a serious injury, you're not gonna be able to distract it with other pain. So we have been, by we, I mean people with chronic pain, um, have been starting to find each other through the internet talking about ways that we manage our pain through novel pain, through kink, 
they're not just using you know pain in the moment but they're saying no keep giving me the pain basically and i'm going to try and build that tolerance to that pain for a purpose other than the gratification of this scene it's actually being used strategically to mitigate the chronic pain and i find that fascinating there's no one size fits all when it comes to kink and bdsm An important skill to develop early on is communicating your wants and needs, as well as being able to listen to your partner when they communicate theirs, both of which can be a lot more challenging than we often acknowledge. People who are entering BDSM and kink scenes are sometimes surprised of how much we talk and how much plans we make. Consciousness, I think, is the dictating factor. I think what you don't want to do in a power dynamic is accept unconscious directions. If you have this picture in your head that you're a female dominant and that means you do blah, whereas doing blah actually does nothing for you, letting yourself do it because you think you ought to is a pretty good formula for a really shitty scene. So being aware of what turns you on and what simply doesn't, what turns your partner on and what simply doesn't, and where the charge lies for you in the things that do turn you on. I think the other thing in any kind of power dynamic is to be aware that bottoms get to have needs and tops get to have the need to be nurtured, get to have weaknesses. So you need to make space to acknowledge each other's humanity and take care of each other's needs inside or outside the scene. Keep coming back to the present moment. Feel our bodies and to listen to our bodies and to our nervous systems. They're constantly telling us so much about what's going on. And most of us don't grow up being encouraged to listen. We're encouraged to listen to our head only and to our thoughts. And that's super, super harmful, especially when it comes to trauma. Just make it your habit to talk about your body sensations, about your feelings, and that will enrich negotiation and play. There's also lots of different hand signals you can do, lots of different facial expressions, foot tapping on the floor. You know, like there's so many different ways of communication. We often think that it's only verbal Having other ways set up in advance, this is how we're going to communicate. This is what I'll do for you. This is what you'll do for me. Um, I find to be the best form of negotiation. Aftercare needs to be included in the negotiation. And too frequently it isn't, it's, it's dismissed as just like this extra something that you get at the end. Why? Aftercare, to me, is no different from the negotiation or the scene itself. Much like the negotiation and planning before a scene, aftercare is often not portrayed as part of kink and BDSM. Aftercare can vary from cuddles, talking, checking in, drinking or eating certain things, or even just a moment of tenderness to acknowledge where you've been together. And so aftercare is that that conclusion of the scene that you've been doing and it is wrapping up everything that took place not just emotionally but also physically within the scene 
and then providing what what your partner or partners needs. Because you're really raw. You have let go of a lot of the executive function that keeps you safe in the real world. And you are incredibly vulnerable and skinless. And so aftercare is a process for coming back into your body and being able to function again after a scene. What it looks like for most people is a lot of snuggling and cuddling and rehydration and something to keep your blood sugar back up and just generally cherishing each other while while your skin is down because that's kind of why you did this. You might as well enjoy it, be with your partner and feel what it feels like to be that unguarded for a little while before you have to go back to being guarded. In the topping book, uh, Das and I talk about a scene we did together, which was the first time I went into one of my really criminal, bad male personae with her. And afterwards, I was just wrecked. I had been this awful person for the duration of the scene. I'd been saying things I didn't know I had in my head. And I really needed a huge amount of reassurance that we were still okay that she wasn't going to see me as that person outside that play space and so we went upstairs together to get something to eat and when we got there i just plumped down at her feet and said would you just pet me for a little while please and we kind of sat there for an hour or two with her just petting me and reassuring me that we were okay so it's not just bottoms that need that kind of aftercare it's tops too We've seen the representations of BDSM in pop culture increase fairly rapidly, the obvious example here being Fifty Shades of Grey. While this mainstreaming of kink is seemingly positive, if we're going to extract something from a subculture and lift it into the mainstream, it seems important to bring with it the knowledge created and to pay credit to those who've made it what it is. Kink is fundamentally about subverting norms, defying what was accepted by the mainstream. So there's almost an irony in it becoming mainstream itself. There's a lot of cultural baggage that can come with kink. Large parts of its history have been rooted in oppression and slavery. Beyond this, when something becomes more accepted by society or a group within society, we often minimize its complexity. When we trivialize kink and BDSM, we create risk. Many kink practices aren't things to blithely try. They require knowledge and attention. For example, asphyxiation, sometimes referred to as choking or breath play, is commonly portrayed in mainstream porn, and research has found is becoming more commonplace in sexual encounters. However, many kink collectorates and parties won't allow asphyxiation due to its dangers. Kink is undoubtedly part of a healthy spectrum of sexuality. However, it requires being armed with the right information and the right attitude. There are more and more great ways to find information, like in Janet's writing or on Oh Yes Please, the online kink education platform Emma contributes to. I did a book a couple of years ago. It's actually a new edition of the first book I ever wrote called The Sexually Dominant Woman. It is an entry-level guide to exploring various kinds of kink. I think most men would get quite a bit out of it, too. If you try to get heavy during the first scene, um, it's almost guaranteed to go haywire. And once in a while, you'll strike lucky and you'll have a partner who can go as far as you can right away. Not often. 
There's another misconception that could have been added to the list earlier, and that is that people with disabilities aren't kinky or even sexual. Kaz has been fighting against the lack of representation for disabled people and kink and BDSM communities. She's identified a number of factors that perpetuate this inequality. Disabled people, we have sexual needs just like everyone else. The latest statistic is, I believe, one out of five people in the world has a disability. And when you look on a dating app, you're definitely not seeing one out of five people with a visible disability or in their profile saying that they're disabled. So that plays into the disabled people are not sexuals because there's no representation there. And then when you go to a swingers club or a dungeon or something like that, they're frequently inaccessible physically. So that cuts down on the number of people with physical disabilities who attend, which can then come across as well. They're not here, therefore they must not be into it. The other thing is money. For people who can't work and so their income is limited, they're on a fixed budget, they're living in poverty. This all impacts everything that you input, basically. You can't afford to to go places, you can't afford to buy things or rent things or stream things. Or if you're kinky and you're resourceful, there are a lot of toys that you can make on your own, but you have to have the money to make them in the first place implements of mobility in order to meet people, to date, to go to munches, to go to clubs, to go to parties, all of this, there's a huge barrier there. This then becomes a barrier to education. You can watch all the TikTok and YouTube videos that you want, but if you're not getting a hands-on education, Did I tie this rope tight enough? Did I slap you at the right angle? Like all of these things, like you really need to be able to have a more in-person experience. Not having money becomes a barrier to all of those things. Yeah, I definitely started off with capitalism and then kind of shit rolls downhill from there. A lot of benefit can come from noticing the words and actions we use. Also, our preconceived ideas of a person. We, as human beings, have a tendency to default to the normative and approach everyone from that headspace. And what we need to be doing is really just saying like, oh, hey, here's a new person. I don't know you. If we want to do this thing together, what do you need for this to be successful? What do you need for you to enjoy it? What do you need for you to be safe? That accommodates not just disability, but the wide variety of human nature. We've spoken a lot about the healing and almost therapeutic ways that we might engage with kink. It's an easy line to draw, but Emma points out that it's more nuanced than that. That healing context is super, super different to any kind of play or BDSM context where there might be a friendship or a love affair or a decades-old relationship. The complexity of these social interactions are radically different to 
a therapy context. And both bottom and top, both submissive and dominant, anyone who switches, it doesn't matter what role we take in our play, we are vulnerable people who bring our whole lives into what we do. Whatever we negotiate in terms of exchange, it is not a professional therapy context. Kink and BDSM are vast worlds which are rewarding to explore. Approach them with curiosity and don't let your preconceptions get in the way. These words, symbols and archetypes are permeating into mainstream culture and confusion might arise about their origins or meanings. Most of us will already be enacting something that's kinky in the bedroom. Biting, scratching or teasing. BDSM can seem like a scary word and kink can seem deviant. But if we can learn anything from them, it's the power of communication and being sexually literate. It's something that should be acted out with understanding and care. And I think that's really the thing that we need to be to be doing is embracing the diversity of individuals and our diverse needs. And the best way to do that is by is by starting that conversation with each person. You know, what are your individual needs and can I meet them? Because sometimes we can't and that's okay. These days, with so much good information available in print and on the internet, you can leverage that. Say, you know, hey, look at this story. It really turned me on. Tell me what you think about it. That's a pretty low barrier to telling someone. It's a way of getting the fantasy out so both of you can look at it without having to actually say the words yourself, which can be very, very difficult. There's a big difference between look at this and tell me if it turns you on and do this to me. We are herd animals and we need each other. And opening up and talking about difficult things is one of the bravest, most beautiful things all of us can do. It's often very, very hard to share, to go into that vulnerable position. My advice is try online first if it's too hard in person. There are many, many forums online where people post about their experiences. And there are also phone numbers, like helplines, if you prefer to talk to somebody who you will never meet and, you know, the anonymity of it. Do it. Find these people. We are out here. I think, you know, for those of us who are experienced practitioners and secure in that we wouldn't lose our jobs or our families or our kids if we came out. I think it's great if we can come out because the more people can see that, yeah, that person's into BDSM, but, you know, they mow their lawn, they take good care of their kids, uh, they brought me over a casserole when my mother was sick. That's what gets people accepted, is being good people in, in spite of whatever weird shit they get up to in the bedroom. A big thank you for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcher, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 